0: So if you got a Bible and you're standing here with us this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the second Psalm, Psalm two, Psalm two. If you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you're here with us today. Whether you're joining us online or whether you're here in person, uh, you should have found a card like this somewhere around where you are seated. And if you would like some information about Redeemer, about who we are and why we're here, we would love to connect with you. If you fill out one of these cards, there's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. On the flip side of that, there's a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it would be our honor to do that. Um, So you can put that card in that same box at that same kiosk on your way out. If you're online, you can also find that same information on the homepage of our website. And we would love to connect with you, answer any questions you might have, or just pray for you and for the needs in your life so we started a series last week as we entered into advent together um advent by the way is is just just means arrival as we prepare for the arrival of christ celebrating his birth at Christmas on December 25th. And so each week, we light a candle. Last week, we lit the hope candle. This week, we lit the peace candle. Next week will be the joy candle. The following week, the love candle. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll light the light candle to remind us of the light that Christ has shown into the world and into the darkness and pierced that darkness with His light. And so, that's what we do whenever we light these candles. It's not just some empty, hollow ritual that we do, but it has deep significance and meaning for us as we prepare, as the song Joy of the World, right, every heart preparing Him room as we receive Him as our King. And speaking of kings, right? So many of the traditional Christmas hymns that we sing during the season of Advent refer to the kingship of Jesus. To His Lordship. I looked up a few this week. Joy to the world says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her what? Her King. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. Or hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Man, you guys have got it. O oh, holy night, the King of kings lays thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. O oh, come all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O oh, come ye, O oh, come ye to Bethlehem. O oh, come and behold Him, born the King of angels. Angels from the realm of glory. The refrain there says over and over again, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King or the song that our series is titled after this Advent season, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. One of the verses says, Born Thy people to deliver. Born a child, yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Thou Thy gracious kingdom bring. So many of the songs that we sing this time of the year refer to Jesus being our King. And there are so many texts throughout the Bible that refer to the rule of Jesus, or the reign of Jesus, or the kingdom of God, or the fact that Jesus was born for this very purpose. But this morning, we turn our attention to the second psalm. Psalm 2. So I want to read it for our hearing this morning. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there as we read together. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. The author writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, as we think about the kingship, the rule, the reign of Jesus, the first thing that I want us to see from Psalm 2 this morning is this. is the identity of this king that the psalmist is speaking of. Now, this psalm in its original context back when it was used in the Old Testament era, it would have been used as a song of coronation. So in other words, every time a new king rose to power in the nation of Israel, they would have sung this psalm. Right? It would have echoed through the corridors as they inaugurated or coronated a new king. Right? And they looked forward to this king. But ultimately, they looked forward to the ideal king that God had promised for His people. Right? In fact, in verse 2, this king is spoken of as the Lord's Messiah. And the word anointed in Hebrew literally means His Messiah. And so they're looking forward to this One that God had promised from the garden all the way up until that point who would come. And yet, whenever you look at the language in Psalm 2, one of the reasons that I will tell you in a moment that this psalm ultimately refers to Jesus, it was sung about every king that was coronated in Israel's history, but it ultimately refers to Jesus because no human king in Israel's history matches the description in this psalm completely. Right In verses 1-3, to we're told that, that He would lay claim to authority over all the nations of the earth. There was no king in Israel's history who did that. There was no king in Israel's history that took the nations as his inheritance from verses 7 to 9. There was no king in Israel's history that sat in judgment over all the nations. There was no king in Israel's history that commanded the kings and the peoples of the earth to submit to and worship him. There was no king in Israel's history who fully fulfilled the, prop, the, 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 the things spoken of in Psalm 2. And so when you get to the New Testament, the apostles, when they begin to write Scripture, when they are speaking in the book of Acts, Right? The apostles and the authors of the New Testament, they see this as well. And in fact, Psalm 2 is the most frequently cited psalm throughout the pages of the New Testament. They look back to Psalm 2 and they said, okay, while the original context here was this inauguration or coronation of these kings in Israel's history, they must have been talking about someone other than those guys who rose to power and ruled for a number of years because none of them fulfilled everything spoken about in this psalm. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, I'll give you a few examples. Acts chapter four, verses twenty-three to twenty-eight. Listen to, listen to what's written there. When they are re- were released, Luke writes these words. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, "Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them." who through the mouth of your, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed." For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. So, In Acts chapter four, Jesus is indeed the one whom they point to whenever they say the Gentiles were raging, the peoples were plotting in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves against God and His anointed. Speaking of who? Jesus. In Acts chapter thirteen, we see this as well, verses uh, 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 thirty, verses twenty-six to thirty-three. Where it says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, condemning Jesus. And though they had found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Authors of the New Testament go back repeatedly to Psalm 2 and say this is talking ultimately about Jesus. Furthermore, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, the psalm shows up again and refers to Jesus as the one who would rule the nations with the rod of iron. With a firm and mighty rule. Psalm 2, ultimately, church, is about Jesus. Now, this is a problem for us. Okay? And if you don't see the problem for us, then you don't understand the gospel. This is a significant problem because this is a problem for us because we are born as rebels against his reign. That's how we come into the world. Listen, in a couple of weeks, we're all going to exchange gifts. Or at least some of us will. Most of us will. Some of us might. I don't know. But we're probably going to exchange some gifts here in a couple of weeks. And for many of us, you're probably hoping that some of those gifts that are going to be nestled under the tree or placed in the stocking are going to show up on the couch magically and mysteriously on Christmas morning are going to be electronic devices. Right? We live in a world filled with them. Right, and we're always looking to upgrade to new pieces of technology. In fact, those of you who have recently upgraded your operating system on your iPhone, right, you realize that there's... Yeah. Upgrades are not always better, okay? Uh, But listen, we're constantly looking for newer and nicer gadgets to make our lives simpler. But a lot of these electronic devices, from the moment that you unwrap them and take them out of the box, right, there are certain things that they are preset to do coming from the factory. So before you ever get your hands on it and try to make it do something for you, somebody at the factory has already preset all of the operation sequences is for it and i'm here to tell you this morning church that pro- post fall whenever our first parents took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the garden and sin entered into the world as they violated god's command and violated and betrayed their relationship of trust and faith with him that all of us have come pre-programmed out of the box as rebels who are raging against the rule of god in our lives Raging against the authority of God in our lives. The default setting of our hearts post the Garden of Eden is lawlessness. Is lawlessness. In verses one to three, the psalmist sketches out this factory setting. Of our hearts. Listen to what he says again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now the words bonds and cords in the text were virtually synonymous. And they were used to describe a twisted rope that would have often been woven together and then used as a fetter for a wild donkey or a wild ox. Okay? It, was a twi- it was like a yoke that was laid upon one of these wild animals. It describes this. And so in other words, if you think about it this way, someone else was directing that animal. Someone else, uh, that, that animal was answering to its master. The ox had a master. The donkey had an owner. Someone it was being trained to yield to and submit to that was the cords and the bonds. Right? And we're told that the peoples of the earth right, and the kings of the earth, they're raging against that. They're plotting against that. They're trying to say, how can we burst the authority of God? How can we separate ourselves from the yoke that He's placed upon us? We don't want to yield to Him. We don't want to submit to Him. He says the peoples and the nations, which would refer to peoples, all, all kinds of people at, at the lowest parts of society and then the kings and the rulers at the highest parts of society. He says they plot, they meditate, they give careful thought and deliberation and they take counsel together to consider how they can burst the bonds of God and no longer submit to His authority. That was thousands of years ago. And I'm here to tell you this morning that still happens today. How is it that we cannot submit to but kind of slither away from the authority of God in our lives? We don't want a master. We don't want someone to rule over us. We don't want to submit to anyone. That's the default mode of the human heart from the bottom of society to the top of society. We want to be the sovereigns of our own little kingdoms. Let me give you a few examples of this, right? We just had families dedicate their children and dedicate themselves to raising their children in godly homes. But listen, I'll tell you, no matter how godly the home, and no matter how docile the child, excuse me, how docile the child in public, in private. behind closed doors where no one else can see and they won't make an utter fool of themselves, they will still push back against the authority of their parents. Now, some of them do do it in public, right? Yeah. Some of you are like, you don't know my kids, right? Every time in Target, right? But some do do it in public and some also push back in private no matter how compliant they are in public. Why? Because they don't want to submit to the yoke of another. Right? This is, this is why. Right? Think of it, 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 we can go further, right? Because it doesn't just stop when we were children. This is why parents have a hard time from shifting, right? Those flipping that switch from commanding their children to counseling them as they mature into adulthood. Right? Because we still want to retain some sort of control over how their lives have turned out. They don't know how much we've sacrificed for them. They don't know how much we've given for them. They don't know. So we still want to retain some kind of control. Well, This is why in certain marriages, right? There are some, some spouses who will explode in anger in order to get their way and others will just simmer in silence in order to get theirs. Right? Because we want to be in control. We don't want to be submitted to the yoke of another. We're born rebels who rage and set ourselves against any kind of authority in our lives, especially God's authority. Now listen, no one rebels against Jesus. No one rebels against His rule and reign in their lives because of His compassion for them. Okay? Listen, nobody goes around going, man, that Jesus... You know what I'm saying? That Jesus, there he goes, forgiving people again. Right? There goes Jesus, healing people. There goes Jesus, helping people. There goes Jesus, restoring people. There goes Jesus, redeeming people. I can't believe him. That he'd be so compassionate, that he'd be so tender. We don't rebel against Jesus because of his compassion for us, we rebel against Jesus because of his claims over us. That we are his, we are made in the image of God but the last thing that we want is someone telling us what we can and cannot do. And so we want to burst the bonds and the cords, tear them away from us, but what we don't realize whenever we're doing that, church, is the fact that we're doing so to our own self-destruction. In fact, so many of the scars that you bear in your life because of the actions of others and so many of the scars that others bear others bear in their lives because of your actions, so many of the scars that people bear in their lives because of my actions are because we have raged against the rule of God. That's that's where so many of the scars in our lives come from. See, the reason some children never knew a masculine presence of a father or the feminine presence of a mother is because people have raged against the rule of God. God. You don't need a father, two mothers is sufficient. You don't need a mother, two fathers is sufficient. Raging against God's rule. The reason some grown men still have father wounds in their lives from the men who abandoned them, or they may have been physically present, but emotionally absent and disconnected, is because their fathers were raging against the rule of God. They were exasperating their children through their abandonment or emotional disconnection. The reason some of you in the past may have felt used or abused by people in positions of authority or leadership is because those people used power and authority right, for their own ends and their own means rather than for those who were under it. And in so doing, they were raging against the rule of God which says that you have power and authority, yes, but it is not for you. It is to serve others with. Scar after scar after scar is left because people rage against the rule of God. There are lives that are taken unjustly inside the womb and unjustly outside the womb because people rage against the rule of God. Racial injustice exists because people rage against God's rule. Scars come from the raging, church. They come from the raging, saying, How can we burst the bonds? How can we break the cords? How can we not have the yoke of God resting upon us, training us, training us what it looks like to live as those created in His image and in His likeness? We're want to burst them apart. And the psalmist doesn't pull any punches with regards to the end result of this, because he essentially tells us, in verses four to six, he says, "You can either bend or you can be broken. Those are your two options. Right? There isn't a third alternative. The psalmist in verses 4 to 6 says, God laughs at the futility of our attempts to cast off his rule in our lives and says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. In other words, no matter how much you rage, no matter how much you try to burst God's bonds, relinquish his authority over you, no matter how much you try to escape that, God says, I'm still on the throne, I'm still reigning, I'm still ruling. Essentially what he says is this, no matter how much you rebel and rage against God, God will prevail because God's ruling your life and in my life it can be opposed, but it can never be overthrown. You can oppose it, but you can never overcome it. That all of us one day will have to answer for it. And so the psalmist says he invites us to do something. And this is what he invites us to do, church. And here's what's so vitally important that you hear this morning. Is that he invites you to take refuge under his reign. Take refuge under his reign. At the very end of the Psalm in verse 12, we're told, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, listen, taking refuge in him is not some abstract emotional experience, right? Oftentimes when we think of taking refuge in God, we think of taking refuge in him in our suffering, right? He is our shield and our shelter. And he is. The Bible would affirm that time and time again. But in this particular context, when the psalmist says, Take refuge. Blessed are those who take refuge under Him. He's not necessarily talking about taking refuge under the wings of God in the midst of your suffering and hardship. He's talking about taking refuge under the wings of God by submitting to His authority and His rule in your life. Take refuge in Him by finding shelter for your life under His commands. Under his rule, under his reign. And the psalmist tells us how to do that. At the beginning of verse 12, he says, Kiss the sun. It's beautiful language, isn't it? In traditional cultures, to kiss the hand or kiss the feet of a person in power was often a very public display of submission to him. You've seen enough organized crime movies, right? Somebody's got to kiss the ring, okay? Right? That's the image operating here except He's not a mob boss. He's Jesus. Right? And so He says, kiss the Son. What did it mean whenever you kissed the ring, right? Of the mob boss. It meant that you were submitting to His authority. You were coming under His protection. You were bringing yourself under the carrying out of His will. Whatever He commanded, you were going to execute. So when the psalmist says kiss the Son, he's saying kiss the Son by submitting to Jesus and His rule in your life. And you say, what does that look like practically? Let me give you two things. First of all, submit your desires to Jesus. Submit your desires to Jesus. Have you learned yet? Right? I'm still learning this at 44 years of age. Have you learned yet that not everything that you want is good for you? <laughs> Some of you are like, no, I had not learned that yet. <laughs> not everything that you want is healthy in your life. All right? I, I, I had, we, we, most of you know we traveled to South Africa uh, several weeks ago, and I, this is my fourth time back there, and it's really one of the only times of the, of the year that I travel because I have a really boring life. Um, but in my in my previous journeys there, okay, um, I uh, usually take the same backpack, same luggage, right? Pack it all up with clothes and everything, and the same backpack I carry around everywhere I go here in town because I have no office. I just go to coffee shops and the desk at my house, and so. But in that backpack, oftentimes I will take things out of my pocket on Sunday mornings and I will slide it into the backpack before I come up on stage to preach. And so I usually carry a pocket knife with me. And so I put that pocket knife in my backpack Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Well, that's no problem as long as I'm getting in my car and driving home. It becomes a problem whenever you try to get on a plane with a pocket knife. right? Especially whenever they miss it in the scanners at DFW. That should make you feel real good about TSA right now. Right. So they missed it in the scanners at DFW. And so when I had to go back through security in London, flying through the UK down to South Africa. Right. We're going through security. I put my bag on the conveyor. I'm just expecting to breeze on through and collect my stuff. And they say, they, I don't know if you've been there before, but they pull you aside and they say, sir, can you open your bag for me? And I'm starting to sweat bullets. I'm like, what is in there? What did they find? Who planted something in my bag? And so I go to the side and I begin to open the bag and I say, is there anything in here that can hurt me before I begin to push, push my hands down? I say, no, not that I'm aware of. And so I begin to dig down there and they pull out my pocket knife. And he says, sir, are you aware that these are illegal in the UK? Like you're not allowed to have these in your possession. My brother Shola knows that. I did not Right, they've outlawed knives because there's a lot of stabbings and knife crimes, so they outlawed them. So you can't have a pocket knife in your possession. And so I'm, at this point, I'm really sweating, right? I'm just envisioning the headlines. Right? local pastor arrested in England for trying to sneak a pocket knife onto a British Airways flight. It's not good. And so eventually, through he's like, where are you coming from? I said, from Dallas. He said, where are you going? South Africa he said are you an American I said yes and I'm dumb right I just I played the dumb American card as 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 I put all my cards on the table right and so he says well sir I cannot allow you to continue to travel with this I have to take it from you and I said please do it cost me $15 I can get another one Right. And so he put it in an envelope and he put it down under in their you know, big sharps container, whatever it is that they had another thing, and then he let me go about my way. Right. But the point is this is that there are agents at those gates that are able to tell you this is what is allowed for you to bring upon the plane and travel into this other country, this other kingdom that you're going to be a part of under the jurisdiction and laws of that kingdom. This is what you can bring in. This is what you can't bring in. These are the things that we believe are going to provide flourishing on the plane as we travel together. And these are the things which are going to inhibit flourishing on the plane as we travel together. And I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that when it comes to your desires, when it comes to my desires, Jesus is indeed the ultimate TSA agent who is saying, this is healthy for you to bring into the kingdom, and this is not. And a part of kissing the sun and taking refuge under His reign is to take the desires of your heart and submit them to Him and say, Jesus, is this something that is good or is this something that is bad? Is this going to be good for me? Is it going to produce flourishing in my life, flourishing in the life of my family, or is it going to be destructive in my life and destructive in the life of my family? Right? Is it going to bring about sanctification in my life? Or is it going to bear scars? They're going to take years to heal and close. See, not everything. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that the heart is wicked, deceitful. Who can understand it? Right? So not everything that you and I want is good for us. There are some things that we want that Jesus says you can't bring that in because it's going to destroy you and it's going to destroy others in your sphere. Right. So submit those desires to Jesus. Right? Are you here this morning in single? And you desire to be married. Listen, submit that desire to Jesus and walk in obedience to Him. In the way that you use your body and how you view your sexuality and where you reside and live, right? Submit those things to Jesus and trust Him to provide. Are you here this morning and you're married, but you want to be single? Submit that to Him as well. And trust that He's able to restore and to redeem and to renew and to heal that relationship. Because not everything that we want is good for us. But second of all, submitting to His rule, also taking refuge under His reign, looks like submitting our deeds to Him as well. Right? The things that we're doing. Not only the things that we want, but the things that we do. The kinds of behaviors that we engage in. Listen, some of you have heard me tell the story before, but I, I was out on a run several years ago after Thanksgiving. I had to go burn off some of that turkey and dressing and all those kinds of yummies and desserts. But I was out on a run, and as I was running... Um, I could see coming down the road, right? Somebody who was moving my direction and there was just kind of a puff of smoke around their head. So I thought they were maybe walking and maybe smoking a cigarette or a vape or what have you. And so as I get closer and closer to them, though, I realize it's a young lady and she's clothed in like workout attire and she's running along while puffing on a vape. (laughs) Right? Here she is, man. She's out getting her exercise that morning. (sighs) Right, running along. And I thought to myself, those two things do not belong together, right? They appear to be very inconsistent with each other. Those two actions that she's engaged in simultaneously appear to be extremely inconsistent. But some of our lives as believers look the same way, right? We affirm intellectually the lordship and the rule and the reign of Jesus over our lives. That indeed, He is the Lord's anointed. That He is seated on on the hill in Zion. That He's ruling over all the nations, including my life and in my heart. But our deeds often, sometimes and oftentimes run contrary to what we're confessing. And so we will sing songs about Jesus on Sunday morning, about His kingship, about His rule. He shall reign forevermore. But in our lives, we say He reigned yesterday, but maybe not today. And so in our actions, where are there deeds in your life that aren't consistent with what you declare to be true about who God is? Submitting those to Him as well in repentance. See, to take refuge under His reign is not just some abstract emotional experience. It is a very practical, tangible, day by day reality in which you take the desires of your heart, the desires for revenge against someone who has wounded you, and you submit that desire to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I know this will destroy me. Would you bring about change in my heart? Taking the actions that you're engaged in every day and submitting those to Jesus and saying, would you bring these things under your rule in my life? That's what it looks like. Day after day after day, but why? Why? Why would we do this? Because we're born rebels, right? And We don't want the authority of someone else in our life. So what would lead us To take that step, I want to close with this by saying the only thing that will lead you to come and take refuge under his reign is to see that his reign is redemptive, it is restorative, it is kind, it is tender, it is merciful and sweet. The bonds and the cords that are spoken of in verse 3, listen church, they are not prison chains. They are not shackles. They are not bars behind which you are locked. The text is not saying that the kings of the earth are plotting against the Lord and His anointing because God's King has imprisoned them or has bound them in shackles. Right? They're not like Jacob Marley wandering around right, the night before Christmas with all these shackles dragging behind him. Right? That's not the image that's here or used throughout the rest of the Bible. Elsewhere where the Bible speaks of the bonds and cords of God, it uses words like love, kindness, easy, and light. In Hosea chapter 11, says this, when Israel was a child, I loved Him. And out of Egypt, I called My Son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them." God says to his people Israel in the book of Hosea that whenever he brought them out of Egypt that he led them with cords of kindness and bonds of love. He says in Egypt whenever they had they were under slavery, they were under oppression, they were being being, being being ravaged all day, every day by their Egyptian captors. He says the yoke was hard in their mouth. It's like they were yanking on it from one direction to another. He says, but whenever I brought them out, when I redeemed them, I eased the yoke on them and led them with cords of kindness and bonds of love. Or in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And He says that in the context of speaking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. How they heap heavy burdens upon the people day after day after day after day. And He says, Come to Me, all you who are heavy and weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And in Jesus' day, the yoke was indeed the teachers of the law. It was their interpretation of the law. And so their interpretation of the law from the scribes and the Pharisees, they were laying on top of people saying, you've got to do all these 613 things every single day. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. And Jesus says... My yoke, that is a heavy yoke to bear, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not because His expectations are lesser. In fact, they are greater because what else is greater than love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? But listen, what happens whenever you see that Jesus rules aiming at being redemptive in your life and restorative in your life is you come to see that that yoke is no longer a yoke of duty, but it is a yoke of delight. You rejoice in it as you experience God's grace in Jesus. Think I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how His reign was redemptive whenever Jesus enters into human history. One, when Jesus engages the woman who's caught in adultery. It's a beautiful picture of His rule. Because everyone's gathered around with this woman who, by all accounts, in the reading of the text, she had been set up for this very occasion in order to trap Jesus. They catch her in adultery and they throw her before Jesus. Saying, Jesus, the law demands that she ought to be killed. That we ought to pick up rocks and stone her to death. And Jesus begins to bend down and write something in the dust. And at the end of that exchange, Jesus says, who among you is without sin? Right? If there's anyone here who's without sin, let them go ahead and take the stone and crush her skull. And what happens? They all begin to drop their rocks and walk away. And what does He do? He says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those here who have gathered to condemn you? They are gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. But then He says what? Go and sin no more. In other words, this pattern of life that you've been engaged in. I'm not here to heap shame and condemnation upon you, but neither do I want you to continue to walk in that pattern. His reign is redemptive, church. When He encounters the woman who for 14 years had wrestled with this unclean discharge of blood. And we could get real graphic this morning if you really want to know what was going on. But she hears that Jesus is able to heal and she crawls her way through the crowd just to grab the hem of His garments. And when she grabs the hem of His garments, he feels power has gone out from Him. He turns around and says, Who touched me? And the disciples are like, What do you mean, Jesus? There's people everywhere who touched you. But he finds her in the crowd. And the blood dries up. She's healed. Or the man possessed by legions of demons who are cast out into the herd of swine, throw themselves off the cliff before he's sitting in the graveyard next to the tombstones, cutting himself and crying out all day long. Afterwards, he's naked by the way. Afterwards, he's clothed in his right mind testifying to Christ. The rule of Jesus... Is not about bondage, church. It's about freedom. But whenever we hear about a yoke, whenever we hear about his authority, what we hear being communicate, communicate, communicated, communicated is not tenderness, but tyranny. That's what we hear with our ears. But it's actually reversed it's not tyranny, it's tenderness. It's not control, it's compassion. His, so when you ask the question, why in the world would I submit myself to the rule of this king? The only answer I have for you, because the only answer the Bible does, is because his rule is redemptive. The cords are cords of kindness. The bonds are bonds of love. The yoke is a yoke of grace. Grace. It's easy and it's light. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? One of the ways that you know you're a Christian is that you love that yoke. You're not perfect in obedience to it, but you love it. And you know that it's there for your good. We sing all Christmas long about Jesus being a king. And he is. He is. This Christmas, would we kiss him? Would we kiss the son? Submit our desires, submit our deeds, take his yoke upon us and see His redemptive power at work in our lives and in our community. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank You for Your cords of kindness, Your bonds of love. That love which was ultimately demonstrated for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. For those in the room this morning who may be here and never considered the fact that Jesus is indeed a king. Maybe those words have passed off their lips or through their minds, but never grabbed hold of their hearts. I pray this morning, God, that you would remove the veil, lift the scales, allow them to see Jesus in all of his splendor and majesty and glory as one who is seated in the heavens, who rules over all they would know that His rule is tender, it's compassionate, it's not tyrannical. And the only way that they can find restoration and redemption for the scars that they bear in their lives is by submitting their desires to Him, submitting their deeds to Him, acknowledging Him as Lord. And seeing how that slowly works its way out in the everyday realities of their lives. Knowing that not everything they want is good for them. Not everything that we desire is healthy. May we bring those to You today. And I pray if there's folks in the room this morning who have never crossed the line of faith and found Jesus to be a tender King, who rules with graciousness and humility and mercy. I pray that they would. And for those who have, I pray that those necks upon which the yoke of Christ has rested, I pray that they would find it to be something beautiful and lovely. And in those ways in which they are tempted to cast it off, Father, I pray You remind them there is no place they can go for healing other than You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.